Hello, and welcome to Exploring Axon, a podcast where we discuss Axon Framework, Axon Server, and their ecosystem. I am your host and a software developer at Axonic, Sarah Tori. Welcome to the second part of my talk with my colleagues Stephen Van Balen and Ivan Dugalic on message designs and message-driven architecture. I hope you enjoy our conversation and let's have a listen. So before we get to the evolution, let's talk about compatibility. So for instance, we want to use a serialized format and um, we wanted to um, basically be at some point backward compatible or forward compatible because we're, we're thinking about what we did in the past. We're thinking about what we want to get in the future. So we're, this is all coming down to, um, I guess, designing these uh, different um, components, right? How, how do you go along with that? And what is, before that though, I guess, can, can one of you either, it's fine, explain what is backward compatible, what is forward compatible, and do we have other types of backward compatibility? Stephen, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I, I think I can, but uh, I also <laughs> know that Ivan has a very, very good idea of this. So uh, let's pair up on you this one. You both can share, Ivan. yeah, of I course. Think that's, uh, that's a smart move. Uh, I'll, I'll start, uh, though. Whenever you, so, so this, this compatibility angle, really, or, or well, way, how do you call that, backward or forward or not at all, who knows, or maybe right. both sides, who knows. Um, that really only comes into play if you have a finalized version of something. Right. So if you have a format of your event or command or query, your message uh, that is in existence forever, or might be used by something, only then would it really be of importance to, to think of this. Or that there is a certain scope that you have several versions of a schema, in essence. So that, that adds another interesting layer we could come to later. But as we're doing events, and uh, we are, well, I assume the majority of the listeners also in, enjoys using event sourcing, you have that event store, so you have every type of every event till the end of time. So especially when it comes to events, the idea of versioning is very important and thinking of that compatibility. Yeah. For commands and queries, this is a bit different um, because you're not always dealing with an N amount of command versions or query versions. The only case that would be happening is if you have, or if you're running an application handling a specific type of command, for all the versions it has ever existed in. So, so let's assume I'm building um, a flight application. It can handle the cancel flight command. And that cancel flight command has changed for every version of my uh, flight application. And I'm running all those versions concurrently. Only then would the publisher of the cancel flight command be required to, to have a schema that works in any direction. Mm -hmm. Right. So similar for queries, by the way. Now, having said all that, we can think about being backward or forward compatible. Uh, being backward compatible means that a newer version of a message can go back to the previous format. Mm -hmm. And forward is the other way around. And I think it's, it's uh, worth mentioning. Simple. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, mm -hmm. though. Backward, as you, as you said... And this was something that didn't click with me the first time I, I read about backward and forward was that it's compatible with 
one previous version not all of yeah. the previous versions right because that's yes. another that's another yes. type of backward compatibility is basically backward trans transitive is that is that what it was yeah that, backward transitive i think that's one. okay yeah yeah for, for me that was a new concept i actually also <laughs> got from Yvonne, and i found it very it makes sense you know because i always thought of it from it? one jump but yeah, yeah of course which sense. is which was really great to know also because that to, uh, initially when I thought about backward compatible it was back it's compatible with all of the previous versions but I it was I guess not true it was just compatible mm -hmm. with one previous version if you're in version you know three versions behind then it's not gonna work right have to have a different type there so thanks Yvonne for that <laughs> we learned something valuable no 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 problem I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a little bit difficult uh, when you explain uh, backward compatibility for, let's say, event sourcing aggregate, right? This mm -hmm. is a really uh, special case because we have two dimensions there. Usually in, in CRUD systems, we have we have always like a dimension of time, obviously, but in CRUD systems, uh, the dimension of space is more, uh, we are more focused on that dimension, right? Because usually have like two components. One is the producer of the API, like for example, aggregate that is publishing an event and the other component is just a consumer of that event, right? And you see them, they are distributed across the space, right? One is left and the other is right, right? So, uh, and uh, now uh, if you, it's much better to explain maybe backward compatibility in this example. Then later on, I might introduce uh, an aggregate uh, and, and time concept uh, because it's very interesting, right? So, but now let's focus on this simple one. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, as Steven mentioned, like backward compatibility is it, it means that consumer using the new schema can read data produced with the last scheme, right? So, what, what that really means. So, in this case, aggregate that I just previously mentioned, owner of the API, owner of the, these events, right? Uh, uh, We'll change the event, let's say by deleting some of the attributes from it. Let's say one, right? Uh, and now uh, my downstream application, which is subscribing to these events, is in trouble because maybe uh, uh, you know I need that attribute uh, and uh, I want to do something smart with it, but I don't have it anymore. So, but uh, essentially deleting the attributes, at least from for Avro and for JSON schemas, they're very similar in these rules. It's actually a backward compatible change. So this is good. This really means now I can deploy my consumer first, right? I can even do that with zero downtime. Uh, let's say if I have two instances of this consumer application running at the same time, I can introduce something like blue grid deployment or canary releasing, you know, rolling upgrades in general, whatever you like to call it, deploy first application, uh, first instance, with the new schema right now, I introduce this uh, change first on the consumer side because I'm this was backward compatible change actually. So I'm able to do that. Then deploy the second instance, all zero data. Uh, because remember, uh, it can work with old events and with new schema of events perfectly. So that's, that's the reason why you should probably, if the change is backward compatible, uh, you should deploy your consumer first, and then you can deploy your producer as well later on, uh, all zero downtime. So if your change is backward compatible, you are my hero because 
this will enable more flexible uh, deployment strategies, which are essentially essential and important, uh, uh, especially in distributed systems, because we have like many of these applications scattered all around, and you really want to enable easy and flexible deployment with zero downtime if possible. If your change is backward compatible, this will enable exactly that. Forward compatibility is, uh, uh, is also very nice. It means that if your change is also forward compatible, then it will not break your uh, consumer at all. So, uh, but usually if the change is only forward compatible, you can deploy producer of the API first and then deploy consumer of that API as a second, uh, also with zero downtime. If your change yeah. is forward and backward compatible, you are uh, super cool, super nice. So you my idea them. is, yeah. <laughs> Uh, my idea is that you are aware of these rules. So, so I, I respect teams that invest some time in uh, actually thinking about this, uh, you yeah. know, knowing this upfront. In this case, it can help you, uh, you know, make sure that you try to satisfy these rules whenever it's possible. And you will be surprised. Yeah. In, in most of the occasions, it will be actually possible to do so. So whenever you change your events, Let's try to change them in a way so they're at least backward or maybe forward compatible or maybe both. If that's not possible, fine, we know about it. Let's figure it out how to handle these situations where uh, this is actually not possible. So I guess, yeah. does it make sense, Sarah, or, or maybe? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, Stephen, I'm so sorry I, I uh, cut you off while you were explaining that. <laughs> But if you wanted to add something to uh, to that, yeah, please. Well, well, if if I'd be, yeah, well, I'm thinking. So, so we do add a, a portion of this in our in the training as well because mm -hmm. it is important. You know, uh, yeah. whenever you're making a message-driven system like you do with Axon Framework and Axon Server, you automatically mm -hmm. come to a stance. Okay, I'm running in production. I've got this version of my messages. I'm going to the second. I'm going to solve this. How do I keep compatibility? Um, and and I always try to end that. Uh, please be backward and forward. Sure, Yvonne has a point. You can't always do that, but there are plenty of scenarios where I think you have that flexibility. I hope. Um, what one tiny thing I would add to this is that um, as Axon itself doesn't enforce schemas from a registry, right? So even though yeah. we have a Jackson serializer, it has no connection to a Jackson schema whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. I know that that Avro serializer from Jan and Simon or the one they were working on. You do uh, have to. Does that yeah. to some extent, yes. Right. Uh, that's just a requirement in those cases because yeah. that's how Avro works. Um, yes. So real enforcement of those schemas is, is different. Um, it, it becomes more an, uh, an implicit schema rather than an explicit in a lot of the scenarios because it's the class format that dictates how to serialize or deserialize it. Right. So again, the serialization here is important to actually be able to deal with messages from the past that have fields in an old way that you no longer care about because you have a new version of the actual class this yeah. requires your serializer to be able to ignore those things. We tend to call this a lenient serialization. The framework actually has options for the Xtreme and Jackson implementations to automatically make those lenient for this exact purpose. 
Okay. Nice. So that uh, again, to to iterate, uh, so that the extreme serializer or rejection serializer just ignores unknown elements, so mm-hmm. that well, uh, your old applications can deal with the new format of the messages, which has new yeah. fields that they don't know about, and shouldn't break serialization. And it doesn't care about that. Yeah, yeah, which is really yeah. interesting. Nice. So one thing that you both um, put quite a bit of emphasis on, and I think it's really, really important to talk about, is the uh, design of your schema and how can we minimize the necessity to change the messages um, in the future, probably, right? How can we, um, well, of course, obviously, things as your application grows and requirements change, you have to change things, fine. But... Can we minimize those changes? Can we start somewhere that gives you somewhat of a a safe space that you can say, okay, cool, we we take this design. Um, Of course, we want it to be backward, forward compatible. How do we basically approach this? How do we design for different scenarios? Yeah, it's a good question, right? So... uh... Yeah. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Sarah, we I like to try to be backward or forward or both compatible if possible. Uh, in order to do so, you know, you, you can also utilize uh, something like uh, consumer-driven testing at first, right? So, uh, at least uh, the producer of the API would be informed at the beginning of the process when they introduce the change in their own system, they will immediately know. Uh, uh, you know which clients they are breaking, right? Uh, or maybe they are breaking backward, or maybe they are breaking forward compatibility. Uh, so there are a couple of tools that can actually be used to uh, and be introduced in your continuous integration process uh, as tests that can provide you with this information. This is very valuable information because based on that inform- info, you can choose either to continue breaking them and uh, then introduce some sort of versioning and version your libraries because you're breaking at least one of the clients in your portfolio. If you don't breaking anybody, then why bother actually introducing a major version? You can just uh, you know, upgrade a minor version or just a patch, right? So it can be a very nice input for also you know, introducing some sort of like versioning strategy within your landscape of systems, right? It, it's very nice input to it. So consumer-driven testing is, is the first thing I, I consider, like at least between the systems, between the bounded contexts. Uh, maybe it would be too much to introduce such a testing uh, for services within one bounded context because they're managed with one team. Usually, uh, you know, uh, we can uh, communicate uh, these API changes within one team, within one bounded context, but this is not really easy to do if we are integrating two systems that are also two bounded contexts, right? Usually they're managed by two teams. They can be, you know, geographically or, or mentally, uh, you know, totally uh, uh, two different teams far, far away from each other. And uh, I like to have something like formal representation of that contract as a test in my source code. So I realize when my change in the API schema is going to affect any of these clients. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's what consumer-driven contracts really are, right? So that's the first thing I consider. Obviously, you know, I always try to be backward and forward compatible, but this is the tool exactly that will tell me, hey, you are not doing this in a backward compatible way, or you're not doing this in a forward compatible way. 
So you need some tools that can actually alert you that your change is is not good enough, maybe, right? But when you when you realize, okay, uh, I have to I have to break it, right? So uh, I'm I'm not able to be backward compatible. That's fair. Yeah. Yes, it, it will happen. Uh, then uh, you know how can you help yourself, right? So what what you need to do uh, to tackle down these kind of situations, right? Well, uh, uh, first of all, you can minimize uh, you can minimize chances for this to happen by let's say uh, designing your events, structuring your events in a simple way. So let's say use primitive attributes there, simple thing, right? For example, use integers, longs, strings, rather than complex value objects, right? Uh, because if you have a, like a complex value object. Uh, it tends to change, right? So uh, it also tends to be shared with other uh, APIs, right? And then you are you can easily end up in a in a in a shared language situation, right? Because you're you're sharing a lot of these value objects between different APIs that belong to different services. I mean, if you're not careful, uh, this can actually happen, and it, it was happening. Me, oh, and I'm sorry. chuckling because this literally happened to my team a couple of months ago. <laughs> we yes, decided yes. instead of using um, a string for an attribute, we decided to use value object. And that uh, was okay at the beginning. But once things started growing, then we realized that, oh, this is becoming a really big problem. So then yeah. we had to go back talking about design. We had to go back and redesign things because now we were talking about upstream and downstream and what was affecting something else. One module right. was affecting another module that we didn't initially thoroughly think about. And once things started growing in different directions, and then we just we realized that, oh, this is not going to yeah. work. Then we yeah. had to go back and redesign everything and basically redo a, a good, you know, four weeks of work. But that's, yeah. you know, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> If you really need to use these value objects within your messages, uh, I would like to keep them decoupled and not used by aggregates, for example. So it's it's very convenient, mm -hmm. and this is why we are making that mistake usually because it's convenient, right? So you can yeah. do that, then you will probably do that. Uh, and if you're in such a situation, then uh, your your event API, for example, if your event is sharing some value object, let's say address or yeah. It's a common value object, right? Uh, and you tend to share that, you have that in your aggregate and your event. So it's the same address class, right, that you're sharing there. Uh, now, how can you evolve, let's say, you, you, your event uh, message API, but, but not really also changing your aggregate, right? So you cannot do that anymore. So whenever you, ch or you, you might change you know, that value object from the perspective of the aggregate because you need to change that class there, but essentially it will change the API, the event itself as well, because exactly. the object is shared. So this is, uh, in this case, you're restricting uh, yourself in a way to evolve your API in a more autonomous way. So if these messages are not sharing this value object between them, then you will be able to autonomously evolve them as well in a better way. So that's my biggest assumption and that I have in regarding how you should be structuring your messages, events, commands, and queries, right? This applies to all three of them. Yeah. It's just the dry principle 
so don't repeat yourself right. that is biting ourselves in in the ass most cases right. because you think exactly. as a de- yeah you think as a developer oh i got this uh, nice value object containing uh, the product ids the prices a set of orders yeah. uh, the name the title yeah I can, I can use this in the command and then uh, i'll store it in the aggregate and then i publish it in the event and i use it in my query models in several projections mm-hmm. now one of those things changes now you have to change everything it's essentially that value object coupled everything with one another. And it's literally if, if, what happened to us. Yeah, yeah. If that exact really? object is, yeah, that just happens. I've also been in that space. You know, we're, yeah. we're used to not repeat ourselves. That's what we've been told to do. That's mm-hmm. what the majority of developers say you should be doing. But yeah. when it comes to these, well, your API, well, I think it's a bit different. And these messages are your API. So right. use that sparingly. Do just do that translation step. It might feel cumbersome and redundant at first, but you can make it as as fine tuned as you like. But using flat types, uh, primitive types like Yvonne shared, I would also recommend that. That's just the way to go. Um, I think simple, common value objects are debatable. So I can imagine that an address, uh, the sample you use, Yvonne might not change that often well depending on maybe your unless you're just... sarah and you move a lot <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's and the point i wanted to make an address from the perspective of the netherlands can be entirely different from what it is in serbia or in the us so if your company yeah. all of a sudden moves from being a dutch-based application mm-hmm. to worldwide then you do right. need to change that common value object still so mm-hmm. yeah being very protective about that is smart. It's not so different from what you would teach people to do when it comes to a bounded context. Right. You would do thread translation. You would do that, what they call context mapping. You'd map from what you get to what you want it to be on your end. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good that you mentioned dry principle. So don't repeat yourself. It doesn't work yeah. uh, almost never in a good way, especially in event-driven <laughs> and message-driven systems. So we don't... Yeah tend to share value objects between our messages and aggregates and other components as well. We don't like to share our models uh, between different bounded contexts. So no. we, 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 we have, no, so we, we just, you know, model them uh, differently. So you can have like a product as an aggregate in one context and you can have a product as an aggregate in another context and you model them as two different classes. Uh, because most probably they will be doing the different things and they have different meanings there. So let's do that extra step and extra mile, right? And uh, model them uh, as they should be modeled autonomy. So that's, that's the point. And you fractally do that on every level. So, uh, I mean, as, as much as Correct. you can do the couple things. Yeah. Right? So. yeah, makes sense. So um, we did touch a little bit on what if, something is not backward compatible and what if you do need to change and we we mentioned versioning and steven i'm going to come back to this favorite topic of mine which is upcasters can you use (laughs) upcasters well yes yeah why not yeah in in a lot of scenarios you can it's just um and i and i feel this is somewhat of a misser still when it comes to the actual framework the upcaster support is mainly focused around events Mm-hmm. Granted, this is where the heavyweight lies. Like like I pointed out, you're, you won't be 
parting from your version zero of an event, even if you're at version t 20 or 30 or 40, you'd still have those old versions. So if the backward and for forward compatibility, transitive or not, uh, doesn't work all the way throughout, then having an upcaster that actually changes from one version to another, just one version to one other version, right? Not jump yeah. several steps. Um, right. It's going to be smart. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it, it's right now not easily supported for commands or queries. And that's, uh, I'd very much like to change that in a future version. Hence, hence. <laughs> contributors. <Exactly. laughs> <Our> contribution <laughs> would be very much appreciated, but I can imagine this is a bit, bit yeah, too, too much in the internals. It's, it's a big Nonetheless, one. Nonetheless, <laughs> everybody is welcome. I meant internal and external contributors. Oh, are you going to Oh, God, don't even get me started. <laughs> I think not at the moment, but yeah, that's, that's a definitely... Uh, something yeah, that but upcasters are a really interesting concept we have uh, in Exxon Framework. So this is really yeah. helpful and interesting concept that you guys can use. Uh, because if you are breaking backward compatibility, you most probably need to introduce an upcaster to handle that situation, right? And then you are done. Uh, I mentioned before, like aggregates are very special components. They are uh, special because they're producers of the API. So they're producing events as well, right? Uh, but they're also consuming the same events. But now distribution is not on the space dimension, right? Uh, now only dimension is time. So this is one single aggregate component we are talking about, but now we are only distributed uh, across the timeline, right? Because uh, aggregate will need to read, I mean, I'm talking about event sourcing. It will need to read all of these past events it previously published, right? So these are the same event it published, right? Now it's reading them to construct its own state, but this is actually putting your aggregate to be a producer of the API and a consumer of the same event he previously published, right? And only dimension here is time. And sometimes this is not obvious because we are missing the dimension of space, right? These are not two different components left and right, and it's not anymore obvious, but still you have uh, the same trouble. Uh, so you have to take care of backward compatibility. Right? Nevertheless, this is the same component, you know, reading its own events, right? You're still in trouble and have to take care of that backward compatibility. If you're not able to do so, then you can squeeze an upcaster. Essentially, it's like a filter, it's like a component sitting somewhere between your desirable schema and the, and the serializer and, you know, uh, squeezing some default values or whatever you really want to do with that. So it's, it's your responsibility to create an upcaster and to register that upcaster on the aggregate. So even if your change is not backward compatible, it will able to handle this situation in an easy way, uh, you know, making sure that your aggregate will not throw an exception because it cannot understand some old schema of the event sitting in the store for a year, right? And now you have the new schema, uh, you deploy new aggregate now, uh, it, it, and it doesn't understand that all schema upcasters will help you to understand. Like it, it, it will translate it from one schema to another, from one version to another. And that's why we call it an upcaster. And yeah. for that reason, we also have this annotation in Exxon Framework. So you can annotate your event with a revision. Please, uh, yeah. please, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, if I'm not correct, uh, you know, prove me, uh, prove me otherwise. But I, I guess there is like a revision annotation there. So uh, 
uh, Upcaster will actually move uh, that event from revision one to revision two, for example. So, uh, mm-hmm. yes. No, that's 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 correct, uh, Yvonne. You got a revision annotation you could add to your messages, uh, which is taken into uh, consideration by the serializer. So yes. the serializer would uh, see that annotation on the clause and would retrieve the field from the annotation and add that as part of the type of the serialized type. I can make it a bit more specific and I'm diving into details, but I'm going to do regardless. The serializer actually uses revision resolver, which is an interface of which the default implementation is an annotation based revision resolver using the revision annotation, but you can do a revision resolver on whatever you like. You got the freedom. Uh, However, the recommended and simplest and uh, well, less work for the user is just use that revision annotation. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So and, and, we... uh, and sorry, Sarah, just to yeah, go uh, ahead. No, go for wrap it. This up. Uh, I was also asking yeah, Stephen, I guess, uh, uh, some time ago. So we have this subcaster, uh, and somehow I thought this is just for any aggregate, right? But as I mentioned, aggregate is not the only component that has to take care of network and power compatibility. Right. right. Uh, what if these that these are like two components, uh, you know, now arranged on in space, like uh, two different components. And then, you know, uh, let's 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 think about event handler downstream subscribing to that event. Right? It's not aggregate itself, but now it's an additional event handler. Right? So, and it, it was like a breaking change. So it, it was not a backward compatible change we introduced within that event. So now we are in trouble on the query side. So this event handler. Uh, is in trouble. Can we use this same upcaster, right? And use it on the query side on an event handler component and help ourselves and so to deal with this breaking change, Stephen. Do, do you know? Is this possible? Yeah, yeah, sure. Those upcasters are essentially attached to the message source that is being used. So, um, well, in the majority of cases, that is the event store. So uh, whenever you provide upcasters and register them with Axon's configurer or in the Spring Boot fashion, make them simple part of the application context, they will be wired to that message source. So and, and it's that message source that both aggregates use to event source themselves and event processors use to handle events. So both the command side and query side are safe if you have those upcasters. Mm-hmm. What's important though, as a nice addition, I think, to this, that in essence makes the upcasters almost part of the API. It is the owner of that message should provide that upcaster to whomever requires it because they're ingesting that message. This might feel off, but if you take it to the perspective of things like Avro or Protobuf, those schema, regist- schema solutions also impose on you that you are mindful of backward and forward compatibility, imposing how that change is being made, essentially being that upcasting process. So it doesn't, to me at least, that idea, that analogy makes it less weird to have an actual upcaster as an implementation from some some framework, well, in this case ours, but um, for the sake of, of reasoning, let's call it some framework, uh, make that part of your messaging API that might feel off, but it isn't. It's what those schemas do as well. 
that's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. That's yeah. that's a yeah, really that makes interesting. A lot of sense. Yeah, that's pretty that cool. Makes yeah, makes sense. sense. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, um, fan, this, this is a this is a big topic that I think we can talk about for days. Even yes. one thing that um, you know, um, and I know we, we we covered a lot, and I know that there um, are. Possible. I'm. I'm not sure if there are plans exactly, Stephen. You want you. You know this more than I do. That um, we did initially talk about uh, events being immutable, and we don't want to change them or whatever in the future. Mm-hmm. However, there is a need sometimes, especially when it comes to security reasons and so forth, that um, you do need to make changes to to events in the future. And I will come back to it probably with uh, with a separate talk uh, with um, either just you or both the two of you, if you were interested in that conversation is how can we change events? Is that something that um, it's in the process of talking right now, implementation? Do you guys have any ideas of how you want to um, tackle this? Should we even so, talk about it? <laughs> should we even talk? So... Um... <laughs> I'm I'm fine with expand uh, yeah expanding this podcast to to cover that topic as well. Uh, okay, <laughs> depends on how long do you need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, that's a well, good point. Um, I've actually been there. I've worked on a project where we had taken the stance that okay, we have these old versions. We don't care about them anymore. We need to hmm. move to the current, the latest version. Um, well, we we were very diligent about our opcasters. We always made those. Right. So you can actually use those opcasters to read the old format, make the mm-hmm. new one. But instead of just doing that ad hoc every time, like the framework does, right. the opcasted result is then stored in just another event store. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand that that mitigates from the theory saying that you never change your events. Yeah. Yes, I know. Uh, but uh, I think it's good to be pragmatic sometimes. Right. Yes, indeed. It makes sense. That makes sense. Awesome. Any other points you guys like to mention I mean, before we wrap up the conversation? There are a couple of initiatives. I mean, I just want to mention that uh, all of this is pretty much new. I mean, not only to me, but to everybody. I mean, we are used to having this rest architecture and uh, restful endpoints that you're consuming, uh, graph, uh, QL, uh, you know, flavored endpoints, uh, mostly sync, right? I'm, I'm reading my own rights, right? So right. way of uh, communicating. But, uh, you know, when we talk about messaging uh, API, it's still quite new as, uh, as we realized during this meeting and this session. Uh, and there are a couple of initiatives. Uh, Async API, for example, is just one of them. Uh, I guess uh, that we are also trying to engage with them uh, and to I don't know to to learn and push this. We need uh, we need more tooling. Like we need probably more standards around this topic. I guess uh, this is my my thoughts around it. So we are still young in regarding to how much tooling we actually have. To control this situation in a better way so yeah uh, it's also for me it's also very important feedback that we get from clients and customers right because uh, we now learn what they really need because 
when I'm done with the project, I stay, you know, maintaining that project uh, up to some while uh, and uh, helping them, you know, uh, you know, build, you build it, you run it. So that, that's my mantra as well. But I, I cannot stay for indefinite time uh, with them. Uh, and then usually uh, they feel that pain later on. But before they do, we actually want to talk about that uh, and uh, get that feedback from them so we can create that tooling or actually we can influence uh, even on on the standards that are going to be created in the future. So that's that's yeah. it's very important the feedback we received uh, uh, from our customers, clients, and partners, right? Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Right. So uh, lots of I think um, designing and lots of thought that has to go through all of this, and um, it's it poses a lot of challenges because we're talking about. Um, you know, doing things asynchronously, which is not always comfortable. And, um, you know, a lot of times when we talk about eventual consistency and things like that, that are um, yeah, in the younger stage of uh, the conversation. So as we go on, we improve. And we just had a, a, a different uh, topic that we were discussing before we started recording, which is, you know, um, things are never perfect but you just improve on them as you go and as you learn more about them so i think that just uh that's just where we are we're in the state of improvement and uh, yeah. of course feedback is always appreciated but i really want to uh, thank you both for spending your uh, part of your friday afternoon evening-ish now with me and uh really diving a little bit deeper into some of these topics that um, we frequently get questions on and uh, some of them are very complex and there's no easy answer to them, but at least this hopefully will give um, the users a bit of uh, more of an in-depth understanding and tools that they uh, can use to uh, improve their own applications and uh, use some of these uh, concepts a bit better in their systems. So I really want to thank you both for um, spending the time and explaining things to me and others. Really appreciate it. With that, uh, we'll come back with other topics next time. And um, I wish you both a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank so Thanks, much. Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, and, uh, and Yvonne, of course. Uh, always was, a pleasure. Uh, exactly. Always a pleasure. This was very nice. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Until next time. time. Yeah. Until Bye. next time. See you around. Cheers. 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 I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen and Yvonne. Join me next time as I speak with other wonderful guests on other fascinating topics. Until then, have a great time and happy coding!